You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Season 2 of Terry's Mysterious Moments. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you find something interesting. Or maybe something spooky. Or maybe something just... Mysterious. The Indian Mutiny wasn't an American thing. It did not consist of early Americans being belligerent at the takeover of their tribal lands and fighting the encroaching European-based settlers. It did not consist of hard-faced red men, faces painted with the paint of war, bows and arrows, guns and tomahawks at the ready to spill blood, nor a blue-coated man riding across miles of plains to chase or catch a raiding party. The Indian Mutiny took place on the subcontinent of India in 1857. It had in its causes many grievances against the East India Company regarding taxes and the like, so we won't go into depth on those. But one cause of mutiny among those Indian natives serving in the British Army at the time regarded the type of ammunition being issued to those troops. The newly issued Enfield P-53 rifle, noticed not musket but rifle, had by its very nature of manufacture a tighter fit between bullet and barrel as the older smoothbore muskets, which were more forgiving but less accurate for it. The Enfield used the mini ball, which was used to enormous devastation in our Civil War later on and the cartridge consisted of a ball, paper-wrapped, then filled with powder. The soldier was to bite the tail off the cartridge, as it was called, pour the powder down the barrel, then using the paper as wadding for the bullet, seat the bullet in the muzzle, then use the ramrod to push the bullet down into firing position in the barrel. The problem came when rumors began circulating that the grease used to lubricate the bullets was made either from beef tallow which would offend the Hindu troops or pork fat which would offend the Muslim troops. A stopgap decision was made to train the troops to manually tear off the cartridge tail by their hands. 
But those who circulate such rumors said that the very paper of the cartridge was again infused with either beef tallow or pork fat. Again, this was but one minor point of contention, and the mutiny boiled up and over, causing catastrophic loss of life of not only British subjects, but of native Indians as well. The brutality of the mutineers was fierce, but the retaliatory practices of the British army matched and even surpassed that of the mutineers. Now we come to our story. By the year 1890, the rebellion was long quelled and many of the perpetrators were either punished, some terminally, or forgiven. However, the viciousness of the atrocities had echoes that continued far beyond the mutiny itself. It was in 1890 that a Mr. Girard, a government official, and his wife had reached the town of Hissar. Their assignment in Hissar was to bring felicitations from the British government to the Europeans living in that area. They found themselves invited to a dinner by a Colonel Robinson, an army officer holding a staff appointment in Hissar. The dinner party was small, just the Gerards, the colonel, his wife, and their two young sons, and the civil surgeon of the station there in Hisar. The building where the Robinsons resided was called the palace, as it had been the palace of the Rajah of Hisar before the mutiny, but he had been removed and the palace taken over by the British government. Upon their arrival at the palace, the Gerards were somewhat taken aback at the approach to the Robinson's residence. Here they faced a two-story edifice, but the first floor was boarded up and inaccessible. A metal staircase, much like a modern fire escape, led up to the second story in the apartments housing the Robinsons. The apartment was much to their liking once they got into it, and thus dinner was served. By all accounts, the dinner went well. Good company, good conversation, and good food, which Mrs. Gerard made comment of. Mrs. Robinson said that, yes, the cook was excellent, but would soon be leaving their employ. She said that not the promise of higher wages nor other inducements had turned the cook from leaving. Mrs. Gerard was incredulous when she found out that another cook would have to be found from outside the district and asked why. The colonel answered, because nobody for miles around would take service here. He went on, we were told that when we came, but didn't believe it. Mrs. Gerard, still in disbelief, complimented the Robinsons on their pleasantness but the colonel interrupted her. It's not the employers, he said, it's the palace. It's haunted, you see, he explained. A bit bothered that she might be getting toyed with, Mrs. Gerard called to Mrs. Robinson and said her husband was making sport, telling her the house was haunted. Mrs. Robinson calmly responded, It's true enough, unfortunately, she said, but I'll tell you about it later, if you don't mind. Upon receiving Mrs. Gerard's apology, the colonel admitted it wasn't the first time he had been disbelieved. Later, while the men sat at the table smoking cigars and drinking their port, the ladies retired to the drawing room for coffee. Mrs. Robinson began her story. The Robinsons came to Hisar fifteen years prior to find a delightful place but no provision made for their quartering. The place of last resort, it would seem, would be the upper floor of the old palace. 
So with some cleaning and airing out, some refurbishing, the place was made livable again. But they were told they would never keep servants because the place was badly haunted. Wicked things had been done in there, they were told. Being people of the near 20th century, the Robinsons put no worth to the stories. They did, though, rather suspiciously consider as to whether someone was using the palace as a base of operations for something nefarious. They decided to stand their ground and they moved in. They found one warning to be true. They couldn't find locals to work for them. And the servants they brought with them left within a short time and with really pathetic excuses. So they hired from outside the district and soon the house was a hive of activity. You see, dear, it's all nonsense about this haunting, the colonel told his wife. Then, one night as Mrs. Robinson was in that twilight between sleep and wakefulness, she was roused by the noise of keys being jangled. She thought her husband was perhaps trying to open the wardrobe with her keys, which were under her pillow. She sleepily called to her husband and asked what he was doing. There was no answer and the rattling continued. She sat upright and looked over to find her husband laying beside her, staring at her. He was hearing the jangling too, thinking it was her rattling her keys. She pulled them out from under the pillow. The sounds grew louder, but now they were like the rattling of chains, not keys. By now their two dogs were sitting up listening and growling. The sound was now of metal dragging on stone, and it was heard along with what seemed to be heavy, ominous footsteps. Putting on his dressing gown, arming himself with his revolver, he picked up a lantern and made for the door, cautioning his wife to stay in the room and out of harm's way. When he opened the door, the two dogs rushed out, growling deeply. Then she was alone. After what seemed like hours, but which of course were mere minutes, the sound stopped, just like that. Then the door opened and in crept the dogs, whining and defeated and scared. They simply crawled under the bed. The colonel came in without an explanation for what had occurred. He said he went room to room and found nothing. But as he approached the dining room, everything went quiet. All the servants were called out and a thorough search of the house was made. Nothing was found. After an unrestful night, they woke to find the two dogs dead under their bed, scared to death. Further into the day, one servant after another left until none remained. Once they were alone, the night noises came back with a vengeance, always seemingly to occur on a holiday, whether native or English. The couple became used to, but no less frightened, by the racket. One night, as the noises headed for their crescendo, the wife suddenly said, They're elephants! It's elephants! The colonel listened and the noises suddenly made sense. A short time later, a native who was not so frightened to talk shared this story. The man who was Raja of Hisar at the time of the rebellion and who resided in the palace was reputed to be a man of peculiar cruelty. He trained elephants to utterly destroy people. If one of his wives angered him, she would be shut up in the underground dungeons of the palace 
then the trained elephants would be turned in on her where she'd either be trampled to death or the elephants would catch her and crash her against the walls, literally bashing her brains out. When the mutiny broke out, seven men and their wives, with 15 small children and two Eurasian native servants, came to the palace seeking a hiding place from the rebellious troops in the area. They were crowded into the upstairs room, which in later years had become the Robinson's bathroom. Thinking they were safe, their thoughts were short-lived because the Rajah then turned his men into the room where they hacked the helpless group to pieces. When the British relief column arrived and had taken the Rajah away, they would find the victims. The room was ankle-deep in blood. Corpses piled on one another blood and gore all over the walls and, worst of all, the heads of sixteen of the party were found on the mantle of the room used later by the Robinsons as a drawing room. Having heard this horrendous tale of bloodlust, murder, and madness, Mrs. Gerard asked if the noises were still heard. Apparently, after the truth had come out, the noises had stopped. The Robinsons were just glad it was the elephants they'd heard and not the other horrors. Another strange tale of the mutiny involved a Mrs. Torrens, the widow of a General Torrens. In 1856, she was living in South Sea, Hampshire. Her daughter was married to a Captain Hayes and had gone out to India with him. Mrs. Torrens wasn't happy her daughter was so far away, but she knew her marriage was a happy one, so she didn't worry much for him. That did change, however, after one night, Mrs. Torrens had a particularly terrifying and vividly real dream about her faraway family. She found herself in the town in India where her son-in-law was posted. All around her were wild-eyed natives, some with guns, others with blood-covered knives and swords. They seemed not to notice her as she made her way to the barracks of her son-in-law and paid no mind as she entered the building. She found the quarters of the captain and entered in to a frightening sight. Her daughter and son-in-law were fighting against an overpowering group of natives. She was helpless to do anything but watch, and to her horror, she witnessed the ultimate death of her family. Upon awakening, she still felt the shock and horror of her dream, and so moved by it was she that a letter was sent to her daughter expressing concern and relating the dream. Her daughter understood, but felt she couldn't desert her husband based upon a dream. She decided she would send her children to her mother in England. Upon the children's arrival, Mrs. Torrens took some comfort, but then the children weren't in her dream. In 1857, the mutiny sometimes called the Sepoy Rebellion, occurred, and the sad news came to Mrs. Torrens that indeed her daughter and her husband were terribly murdered by the rebels. She wasn't shocked, though, since she knew the death they'd suffered. They died just as she saw it happen in her dream. A further story from the rebellion. Funny about the story of Mrs. Torrens, something let her see the death of her daughter, perhaps to ensure the safety of her grandchildren. In another story, a similar force of good saved a woman from a terrible death. 
In the case of another captain's wife, whom, she, whom we will call Mrs. X, she had received word of the approaching mutineers at her husband's quarters in Mirut and was packing in anticipation of taking flight to safety. But before she could get too far along, the apartment door burst open and a huge sepoy stood in the doorway, a bloody gore-covered axe in his hands. The captain's wife stood her ground out of fear, but she started praying, her being a woman of faith and belief in supernatural salvation. Time oozed by as the two faced each other, when much to her amazement, the floorboard before her creaked as though someone large and heavy had stepped in front of her, and she felt something brush the front of her skirt. The sepoy's wildly grinning face changed, his dark skin paling considerably and his eyes widened in horror. It was his turn to be frozen in fear. Then he turned and fled. The lady fell to her knees, offering up a prayer of thanksgiving for what was obviously divine intervention. I want to share an event that happened to me just this past Friday. It has nothing to do with the Sepoy Rebellion. My wife and I had gone to get her a CAT scan due to a sinus problem she's had for quite a while. We went, they scanned, we left. But since it was right at lunchtime, we decided to hit a near downtown restaurant for lunch. We went to the nearby spaghetti warehouse here in San Antonio and had a nice lunch. I was going to engage our waiter in conversation about the reportedly haunted spaghetti warehouse in Houston, so I googled it on my phone. When the info popped up on my phone, an exit door opened on my right and stood open for about a minute, then closed. There was no way to miss this as it was midday and the sun was white hot bright glaring through the door into the darker interior of the restaurant. The waiter came by, we told him what happened and he simply walked away. But he did come back and tell us he thought the location was haunted. We got up to leave and as we neared the reception area, I stopped to tell another waitress about the incident. She looked back at the door and her jaw dropped. She pointed. I looked, and the door was open again. She ran and got her manager and showed her the door. The manager looked perplexed and went to shut it. I heard her literally slam the door, and as she came back, you could tell she was somewhat shook. We went into the reception area, and I started telling her about the door and mentioned the Houston location. She turned and pointed to a big, beautiful hutch standing in the bar dining area. She said it was from the haunted Houston store which closed thanks to Hurricane Harvey and that one of her newly transferred managers was from the Houston store too. That manager had taken a photo of the hutch in situ at the Houston store with no one around. But when she viewed the picture, there was a reflection of a little girl in the glass front of the hutch. Now, as she was telling me this story, a lady was sitting on a sofa right in front of the hutch. And when she heard about the little girl's appearance, she moved as fast as she could to another seating area away from the hutch. I've got a request in for the Houston photo and another from another location. And if I get them, I'll post them on the Mysterious Moments website. 
Well, that's what I've got for this week. I'm sorry it's kind of short. But I did want to touch on those stories about the rebellion. They bothered me since I was a kid when I first read them. So, that's what I've got for this week. Remember, Mondays, you listen to Aaron Hunter with either listener stories or interviews on Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. On Tuesday, you listen to Aaron Frail as he presents Aaron's Horror Show. On Wednesdays, you listen to me, Terry's Mysterious Moments. And on some Thursdays, The Sandman Lullaby with Patrick Sean Jones. That's all of us on the RPA Network. We are glad to be here to to give you something to listen to. Anyway, I hope you folks have a great week. It's good to be back. And we'll talk to you later, okay? Okay.